0: All right, we started off the series with a teaching entitled, Turn, Let, Go, which introduced the idea of Jesus' third way. And this is just a written sentence summary. Go back to the talks to get the fuller message, so there's a lot of things that I've left out. But I just wanted to give an overview for what have we been talking about over this series of Jesus' Ethics. Turn, let go was about evil being opposed without being mirrored. And the idea of turning the other cheek or letting them have your tunic as well or going the extra mile traditionally has been interpreted as just laying down while somebody beats on you. But what we've discovered is that the ethic is really about restoring true humanity to every single person to whom injustice has been done. And so it is actually an active movement to oppose evil. But oftentimes, without the Jesus ethic, we oppose evil and we mirror it. I'm going to get you back exactly in the same way that you got me back. And it just perpetuates that cycle of evil. And what Jesus does is oppose evil in a way that it does not mirror. It's just a brilliant teaching that Jesus does there. Next week after that, we did greater and lesser. And the idea is to avoid moral rigidity and embrace the priority of love, meaning all the commandments in the Bible come under the commandment to love God and to love your neighbor. And instead of just simply saying, well, the Bible says it, that settles it, I believe it, no more conversation. We recognize that all the commandments get subsumed under this concept or idea of loving God and loving your neighbor. And so we actually have to engage more with questions and figure out If love is the ultimate commandment, then how does this commandment play out? So that was greater and lesser. A week after that, Danielle taught on scandalous grace. And I love this phrase, that grace is absolutely amazing, but it can also be infuriating. In this parable, Jesus talks about equal wages for people, regardless of how much that they have worked as an illustration that God's grace is just absolutely nonsensical. And he pours it out to all of us in equal portion, which means that life is, according to God's grace at times, unfair. And we think that we have earned so much of God's favor because of who we are, what we've done, but the reality is we've earned nothing. The grace of God is just given freely, which, for those of us who live by a standard of merit— It can be infuriating to us. A week after that, we talked about becoming like a child, the avoidance of generational chauvinism. Not only that we take up childlike qualities, but we completely spurn any hierarchical system that some people in our congregation or in our communities are more important than others. A week after that, we talked about kingdom-minded earthly good, and instead of the kingdom being somewhere that we go to after we die, we talked about the kingdom being something that's very present right here and now. Not a ticket to a heavenly amusement park, but the summons to the service of a great king right here, right now, and it is active. God, who is very, very close. week after that, we talked about, whoa, 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 and if you've ever been ticked off at religious people who abuse religiosity for the sake of their own power, you're in good company because Jesus does too. He is also infuriated and tries to correct that by instituting a real good way of living out the religious ideas and principles. Week after that, we talked about living on the margins, that Jesus not only ministers to those on the margins, but he lives there with them, which is a powerful way to be of ministry. Week after that, we talked about forgiveness being a connection between one another, but also a restoration of our covenant between our Heavenly Father and ourselves. Week after that, we talked about little, yellow, better, because the kingdom of God is not about the large and the huge and the spectacular, but more about the small, the seemingly Keywords seemingly insignificant, unimportant, mundane, ordinary, and everyday. And every little thing that you do makes a difference in the kingdom of God. And as we walk out these doors and as we drive along the roads and as we're in our homes and our kitchens and in everyday school, those little decisions that you do make a huge difference for God's kingdom. Week after that, we talked about empire. And how living by God's values ultimately subvert the power structures and expose injustices. And so you are actually empowered by the ethic of Jesus, even if you live in a power structure. And last week we talked about all in, the idea and the concept that these are not just religious principles for a segment of our life. These are ideas and ethics and concepts for all of our life. And if we were to jump all into that, that would make a radical difference in our lives and a radical difference in this world. And tonight, what I'd like to just simply share and sum up is all of this is for life. John ten ten. Jesus has this beautiful passage that many of you are familiar with. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly, or more full, or fully, completely, overflowingly. And what I'm going to suggest to you tonight is that the faith that we have inherited, the faith that all of us proclaim, the faith that we are trying to teach, that we're trying to live, trying to make come alive in this congregation and in this world, is not just simply rules and regulations, not just simply morals and ethics. Those are the means to getting to the ends, which is what I think Jesus is teaching full and abundant life, the best kind of life, the absolute epitome of what it means to be an alive human being, which means that this applies to everyone, everywhere, at all times. Let me give you some background and give you a little bit of my argument. We mentioned earlier, Danielle Todd, on the background of this emerging church, the Jesus movement, being first-century Roman Empire, and it's got a lot more to that, but um, the Roman Empire being this backdrop. And this is the picture of the Colosseum, a very famous, or should we say infamous, place where people died as a result of the desire for entertainment. And it's into this world, and all sorts of wonderful study could be done, that Jesus is born. According to scholarship, he was born somewhere between the years of 6 and 4 B.C., There was a monk who tried to calculate the exact time that Jesus was born, um, which is why our calendar is set the way it is. However, he was off by about four to six years. Sorry if that bums somebody out, but that's just the reality. We're off by about four to six years. And then the Bible tells us that somewhere around the age of 30, he begins his ministry. So somewhere between 24 and 26, he begins this ministry, and he dies in the year 30 AD. There's obviously some controversy regarding the exact date of that, but I think that's the best date. And all that to say, within this time period, somewhere between 34 and 36 years of Jesus' life on this planet, something absolutely radical happened in this world, which is why you and I are here today. And fundamentally what happened is that Jesus comes into this world And he begins teaching and living in such a way that the people around him, the Jewish people and the pagan people, start recognizing that there's a whole, completely different way of doing life, especially set to that Roman background, that Greco-Roman background, and even in a Jewish background, that when this Jesus comes along, he starts giving life and healing and hope. And he's ultimately describing a way of living in this world that is radically different and radically more progressive, and radically more challenging than any other kind of life that you've ever heard of before. Now, yes, there's exhortations, and there's hard teachings too. There's difficult things that we find in the teachings of Jesus, but anybody in this room who's ever done anything difficult knows that great things often come at a cost, that great teachings, great life often comes at a sacrifice. Great things come because hard work is put into it, And so what I'm going to suggest to you is that what ultimately happens in this Jesus movement is he comes up onto the scene and gives a bunch of teachings to describe a way to live. Now, we would describe that way of living, perhaps in a word called deeds. Now, that's not the best word, but it's a word that describes a Hebrew word behind this idea, which is the word mitzvot. Many of you have heard of uh, Jewish people getting bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah. that last word mitzvah or mitzvot is the word for commandment or the word for deed or the word for good deed, good work, good action. So a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah, you become a son or a daughter of these commandments, of these good deeds, which means that you are taking on in your life these commandments and deeds one modern illustration for me i was on an el al flight which is the israeli airline and i was sitting next to an orthodox jew and because i was heading to israel coming home i can't exactly remember which flight it was i pulled out my hebrew bible and i'm studying because getting ready for the trip or coming home or refreshing whatever notices that I'm reading the Hebrew Scriptures, and we have small conversation. I don't know if you've heard in the news recently, but El Al has had some complications because in the Orthodox community, it is against the commandments, it's against the law, it's against teachings for a man to be anywhere near a woman. Now, if you're going to go on an airplane, this is going to be difficult, So it's actually caused some complications because you get your seat assignments, and yeah, but there's a woman sitting there. So it's kind of been a little bit of a debacle. But nonetheless, during my flight, an Orthodox Jewish person comes up and notices that I'm sitting between two men, and the stewardess, the flight attendant, says to me, "'Would you mind giving up your seat and going to sit?' Uh, you know, trading seats. And I said, sure, I don't have any problems with that. Um, It was both the middle seat and it's a 17-hour flight, so I'll be fine either way. And so I decided to make that shift and change. And as I was getting up, the Orthodox uh, Jewish person next to me says, you have just performed a mitzvah, a good deed. You have, by your actions, helped to bring life into this world. And I thought to myself, No. Um, I thought to myself, what a different way of thinking about a commandment. Our idea of commandment seems and feels oftentimes so oppressive. You have to do this. And if you don't do this, then there's something wrong with you or you violated some sort of rule and shame on you for doing so. No, no, no. The fundamental feeling and idea of these commandments of these good deeds is when you perform them, Something happens in this world that brings more life into this world. So all these commandments that we see throughout the scriptures, throughout these teachings, all these teachings that we've done is essentially for life to come up into this world. One way of saying it is perhaps these commandments, these vote, these good deeds that we do are really a reflection of the heart of the author wanting to see wonderful life come into this world, or another way of putting it, it's what happens in the world when people are captivated by the truth of God's heart. All of this, everything that we've taught, all of what we follow with Jesus is for life to emerge on the scene. Now, early Christians were captivated by this idea Acts chapter 2 verse 42 is a famous verse, a well-known verse. In fact, a lot of ministries, if you just search it, there's a lot of ministries actually named 242, which is referenced back to this passage. And it says this, and I want you to listen carefully to what these early Christians devoted themselves to and what kind of life was living. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Teaching. I want to learn. I want to grow. I want to hear more. To the fellowship. Connections with other people. When I connect with you around a table, around a meal, there's something that happens that brings me more life. To the breaking of bread, which is what we are about to do, and to prayer, the connections with God. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They started to recognize that you are just like me. You are just like me. You are just like me. We have this in common. We are all now a part of this movement. And look at this, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. People's lives were being touched and transformed. And if there was a detriment of life in somebody and somebody had extra, they sold what they had to give to that person who had and every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This and many other passages point to a first century context and a first century Christianity that illuminates not a stale, religious, mundane kind of life, but a radical transformation in how these first Christians believed what it is that they were, who they were, their identity, a radical change as to what they thought and how they saw this world, and a radical change as to how they are to behave. And if they were to take on this way of Jesus, if they were to adhere themselves to this way, life would begin to emerge into this world in a way that has never happened before. These first Christians believed something different about themselves, they believed something different about the world, and they believed something different about how they should behave. They really took this on, full all heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, as a result, these deeds, as they began to live in this particular way, they started recognizing the reason why this is working is because of this person, Jesus. And so slowly over time, actually quickly over time, these deeds started to become creeds, statements about their faith, Philippians chapter 2 is a famous example of it, and I've given you a snapshot, and the reason is because if you take a look at this particular portion, verses 6 through 11, if you notice, there's an indentation. Every single one of your Bibles will have an indentation. Why? Most scholars believe that this segment here was actually an original or very primal Christian creed, a declaration of who and what they believed in, of why they lived the way that they lived. Jesus, this person of Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, These early Christians took their life and they started to realize my life, the life that I'm living, of how this is coming to bear in this world is because of this. We got to write this down. This is so good. I got to write this down. So they began to write this down, codify it in creeds. The problem happened, however, as soon as we begin to do this, very quickly, these concepts, this way of living, began to be solidified in doctrinal statements about the faith, and you have to believe these certain things. And part of this comes from Greek culture, that there's an abstraction, meaning pulling it out of this world and putting it in the world of ideas and concepts. And pretty soon Christianity began to take the form of, do you believe that creed? But the problem is with that shift is this, Creeds are not the finish line to whether or not you have accomplished what it means to be a Christian or what it means to be a part of the way. Creeds are not the finish line. It's not that you grow and you learn, and once you learn the creed, once you learn to say that statement, you have now completed your duty. No, no. In the early church, creeds were the beginning line, they were the starting pistol. It's because of this Jesus. It's because of this death and this resurrection. It's because of the life that he lived. It's because of his glorification that we now learn to take this and live it out into this world. But very early on, that shift began to happen. The ways in which people began to live began to shift into creedal statements and affirmations of, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And we've inherited that to this day. And I will tell you, Even to this day, I get emails. Well, if you don't believe this, then you must not be a Christian. And I want to say, creeds were never the end. They were always the beginning. They were the starting pistol to say, let's start here, and then let's figure out in this world, how does this come to life? The second thing that happened is that values got taken over by power. These early Christians lived by core values, and pretty soon over time, as the movement began to flourish and blossom in this world, you begin to be more powerful, more influential. And and the, the best example of that is Constantine. For those of you who know church history, you know this really, really well, that Constantine, during one particular battle, had a dream. And in this dream, a sign of a cross appears. And the voice to him, and this is, of course, mythical, we don't know if this actually happened, but the Myth, according to history, is that he sees this sign, the sign of the cross, and the word says, by this sign, conquer. Goes into battle, he wins. And as a result of him winning this battle, he converts to Christianity and then turns the entire empire into Christianity. The problem with this, and then he takes this sign and then this banner, which is the first two letters of Jesus' name, Christos, which is the Greek word, so chi and ro put together. That's the X and the P, but it's actually a chi and a row. First two letters of Jesus' name. He would fly this banner. He p- even puts it on coins there and begins to fly this banner around and says, now because I've had this experience with Jesus, I have power and control. Now, we need to read several thousands of pages of history to really understand the implications of this. But suffice to say, at least for this message, just to kind of set some framework, this was a radical shift and perhaps didn't bode so well for this early movement. And we've been struggling with this ever since. So what does this mean? The very beginning, what I'm suggesting, all of this, what happened is for the life to emerge, to come upon the scene. But quickly over time, things turn to creeds and things turn to power. And I would suggest to you that we are struggling and living in the exact same world. That if you don't believe the very things that I believe, then there's something wrong with you or you're a heretic or you're an infidel, etc., etc., etc. And we see this in the news all the time. And we struggle with this even as a Christian community, as a church community. And the power structures are all changing. The technology that is happening, that's just one example. Politics, power structures are changing and shifting, which means that policies and moralities are shifting and changing, which makes us feel as if we're losing power and control. And as a result of this loss of power and control and these attributions to creeds and doctrinal statements, there's all sorts of different things that emerge upon the scene that complicate the church. Um, There's different kinds of ways in which we read our Bible, (laughs) the Duck Commander Faith and Family Bible. There's different denominations. There's all sorts of different ways in which church holy spaces are being constructed. And then we even have these ways in which we communicate our faith, such as life verses and um, special bumper stickers that we put on our car, which can be in some ways creedal statements or statements of utilizing all of that for the uplifting of myself or to leverage that particular power. And by the way, regarding life verses, I just had to throw this in there. My dog has a life verse. It's Matthew nineteen twelve. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made that way by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom, which is awesome. He's made himself that way for the kingdom. And let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So my dog has a life verse, if you are curious. We've been struggling with this power, these creeds, these ways in which how do we live out this Christian faith for a long, long time. And we've inherited this, and we find ourselves in this exact same place today. Power structures, who's in control, creedal statements, what is it that we actually believe? As a result, I'm wondering if the church as a whole has really been a place where you come to experience the fullness of life. Philip Yancey tells this story, this heartbreaking story of a friend of his who is working with uh, a a homeless shelter recovery place. And he meets this woman who's on drugs and to feed her drug habit to ensure that she has enough money. She sells her two-year-old daughter to men for $100 a trick and uses that money to feed her drug habit. This gentleman who's been working in this industry for a while asked the woman have you ever considered going to church have you ever considered the church and she replies why would i go there i already feel like crap <laughs> and i find that statement both true and heartbreaking and i sometimes wonder if jesus is like this is not what i intended And so the question for us is, what are we going to do? How do we live? What is our response to the reality that we live in first century Rome and first century Greece, just like they did then? It's the same thing. Acts chapter 2, to take on and to make come alive these amazing teachings. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, I have not come to abolish these laws, and these commandments, I've come to fulfill them, to make them come alive in this place. And we do so by captivating, being once again captivated by all of these stories, by all of these values, by the dignity of humanity, by justice, mercy, compassion, by the entire story that we've been telling and living, by that entire Genesis series that we talked through last year, by these series that we're teaching through with Jesus' ethics, and to be captivated once again by this story. So when Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the Torah, the teachings, we go back to these stories and say, oh, we start to see that in Genesis, this beautiful story of God being an architect, a fabricator, and he's a, he's a project manager all in one, creates this amazing world out of chaos to bring life into this world. And then in Exodus, we see that God is a listener. He listens and hears his people. He empathizes and he liberates. And then he's also this amazing civil engineer. He takes this nation out of slavery and he says, okay, what are we going to do with you people? You've never built a nation before. So he has to build a nation. And then he organizes them and he illustrates with amazing, picturesque, real imagery what life is all about to express that he's a lover of life. And in Numbers, he describes himself as a faithful companion. He leads his people through the desert. He's their guide. He's their protector. And then in Deuteronomy, he's a lover. He's a covenant keeper. He's a life giver. And at the very end of Deuteronomy, which goes right to what I think Jesus is saying in John 10, choose life. So when we read all these passages, and when we read Jesus, and when he says, I have come to make these things come alive, what I think Jesus is saying when he says, this is for life, He breathes into all of these teachings an amazing sense of presence to make them come alive. And when we breathe in these commandments and these teachings and these ideas, you and I come alive, and we get to experience the kind of life that God originally intended since the very, very beginning. I find so often that the point of religion and the point of faith is to point out who's bad and who's good. And I'm suggesting to you, according to the ethics of Jesus, that is not the point at all. Forget bad, forget good. We're all on a spectrum. Solzhenitsyn said the line that divides good and evil is not a line that separates two groups of people, but a line that runs down the middle of every single one of us. So I look at every single one of you and I see you're an amazingly good person <laughs> and you're an amazingly wicked person. So let's just set that straight. But the ethics of Jesus is to take these teachings for all of us who are good and bad and to help us see the fullness of life. The question is, what are we going to do as a result? How are we going to do this? And I think what we do around this, these tables and what we do in this church is we simply take these teachings and we've have, we have this handout for you to take home and to have conversation and we begin to start asking some serious questions. How do we bring life out of this? And as we ask those questions, we bring more questions. And I think the reason why more people don't do this, I think the reason why this is difficult and complicated is because it's a lot easier to not ask questions. We can live very, very simply and not engage and not inquire. And as soon as we engage and as soon as we start inquire, guess what, you you and I get very, very perplexed. But I think that's a good thing because that just simply means that more life is now emerging on the scene. So here are some questions to ask us, Harkening back to the beginning of my talk. What doctrinal statements did Jesus commit? To what doctrinal statements did Jesus commit? Every other church that I know of, every other faith organization has a statement of faith. And let me say at this particular point, life verses and specialty Bibles and statements of faith, these are all great and wonderful good things. But I just simply want to bring up the questions. How do we see those things? And how do all of those things bring up the life that God intended in in all of us? So we have to ask the question, what doctrinal statements did Jesus commit to? What political party did Jesus adhere? you laugh because it's a great question, isn't it? And I think one last thing. It's really important for us to focus on life. It's really important for us to focus on the ultimate commandment and John 10.10. Because there's this saying that goes around in philosophical, uh, philosophical circles, what you focus on determines what you miss. And sometimes I feel like if we focus so much on creedal statements and so much on power and so much on what that faith means to me only, we may miss the fullness of life that Jesus intended to live into this world. And so that's for life. Everything we have in this world, from Jesus, his teachings, all of these ethics I'm suggesting to you are for life. Abundant life, full life, complete life. And if what you're experiencing as a result of rubbing shoulders with a church or a Christian or anything like that is killing the life within you, I would ask some serious questions to Is this really the Jesus way? It's just a question. So what's going to happen next? We're going to sit around the table and discuss. How do we have this life? We're gonna we're going to totally experience life because this food is amazing. <laughs> and let's engage. And let's have that conversation. And let's breathe life into one another as we inhale and exhale, inhale and exhale the life and the teachings of Jesus. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to bring the food out and have a wonderful time together. Lord, thank you for your teachings. Thank you for your ethics. Thank you for all of your stories. Thank you for the word that you have given us, which is uh, written down for us so that we can engage with these stories once again. And I pray, God, in all of this, that we can be captivated once again by the amazing life that you bring to this world and to us. And may we, in our hearts and our souls, not only be fully captivated by the life that you have for us, but breathe out that life into one another as well. Be here, breathe into us, and we welcome your presence in this place. In your name we pray, amen.